So just to introduce you to my family, who unfortunately they wanted to be here but couldn't because all our kids ended up catching colds. Um, so there on the screen is my wife, uh, Bethel, and our five children. Um, from right to left, it's David, uh, Jonathan, Adelaide, Peter, and Katrina, uh, from age eight down to age two. Um, and so we currently live in St. Andrews, Scotland, uh, where I'm finishing up a PhD uh, in New Testament at the university there. I'm, going, I'm in my last year and should be finishing this spring. Um, and so Bethel and I have always had a heart for uh, missions overseas. Uh, growing up, both of us participated in multiple international mission trips, uh, some of which were with people here in this sanctuary. So it's wonderful to see familiar faces again. Um, but increasingly, though, we started focusing on training people for ministry in the church. Uh, after I graduated from Westminster in 2012, Bethel and I taught in Uganda uh, for a year at a Bible college. Uh, we then moved to Arizona, where I received a, a pastoral call to be an assistant pastor, and we served there for six years. Uh, and during that time, uh, I was able to go overseas to train pastors in Serbia uh, three times on uh, short-term mission trips. Uh, teaching modular courses there. And so we've long felt a desire to want to, to bridge the academy and the church and be involved in both worlds. You can move on to the next slide. Um, so where will we serve? Um, with my doctoral program finishing up uh, next year, I've been appointed to teach New Testament at Edinburgh Theological Seminary, the seminary of the Free Church of Scotland, which is a, a denomination, it's a sister denomination to uh, our denomination, the PCA. Uh, there's a picture of it there on the left-hand side. Um, it's right next to, interestingly enough, the University of Edinburgh's Divinity School. Um, some, some weird history there. But anyway, um, uh, ETS is strategically located right in the heart of downtown Edinburgh. It's, it's like literally around the corner from Edinburgh Castle, this very famous landmark there. And it has a rich and robustly reformed heritage stretching back to the 1800s. Uh, ETS, uh, Edinburgh Theological Seminary, is one of the few academic institutions in Scotland that trains pastors for ministry. And that means that the, the lecturers at ETS serve not just students from uh, the Free Church of Scotland, but from a variety of denominations with diverse church backgrounds all over Scotland, uh, equipping them with a, a theologically sound and robust education for a lifetime of gospel ministry. In addition to that, though, we also want to be invested heavily in our local church. Um, despite being a center of the Reformation hundreds of years ago, uh, Scotland is a spiritually dark place, a radically secular place. Uh, there's a desperate shortage of faithful ministers um, to fill empty pulpits. And so, by the way, if any of you are interning at Westminster, once you're done, please do, seriously, consider Scotland. Um, because there is a shortage of faithful ministers to teach and preach there. Uh, and so even as we consider where we will live uh, long-term uh, as we make this transition to teaching in Edinburgh, um, we are in part basing our decision on uh, finding and partnering with a church family where we can be deeply involved. Um, and just, in fact, just a couple weeks ago, uh, I had a conversation with a church planter who invited our family to be a part of his church plant, um, next year. And so these are the kinds of decisions that we're weighing at in the moment. But we want to be involved in both the academy as well as heavily in our local church. Um, next slide. 
Uh, finally, what do we need, our needs? Um, please do partner with us in prayer. Uh, we firmly believe that unless the Lord builds the house, the workers labor in vain. And so we invite you to please join with us, partnering with us in prayer at that our labors would be fruitful, that our labors would not be in vain, but that God would bless the harvest field that he is preparing in Scotland. And then also, please do consider partnering with us financially. Um, just to name one of our, our needs, our most immediate need is uh, funding to help pay for uh, visas for us and our family, for me and my family, because it's not just me who has to get a work visa, but our whole family. And so we're needing to raise about $30,000. Um, and so if you're interested in coming alongside us to help further uh, the work of the gospel in Scotland, please do catch me after the service. Um, alternatively, my email is there on the screen, and so if you want to jot that down, you can. Um, I'd be glad to fill you in more on details of uh, our needs. Thank you again very much for your graciousness in having me and uh, being able to talk about what God is doing in Scotland. Um, and so as we turn to uh, the sermon uh, this morning, uh, we, we meet someone else who crosses a pond. Um, it's uh, not the Atlantic Ocean, but the Sea of Galilee. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 20. And I'd invite you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. This is God's holy and errant word. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus. And they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them, how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the, in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is right and true and good, which pierces to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, which exposes us, our needs, our desires, our failures, our longings, which shows us just how far we have fallen short of your good glory and holiness, O God. It shows us how much we need you. I pray this morning that your spirit would be powerfully present among us, opening our eyes, opening our ears, opening our hearts to your word to receive it with gladness and joy that the seeds that are planted this morning may bring forth eternal fruit. I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be right and pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do be seated. Well, in this passage, we come face to face with the heart of Christianity. For in this passage, we come face to face with a man who is trapped in a living hell, and he cannot get out on his own. He's a slave, despite the fact that no one's strong enough to subdue him. No chains can hold him, and yet he's helpless and hopeless, alone and ignored. And this man is also a reminder that we have to be careful when we talk about what's at the heart of Christianity, because some will say that God is like a lifeguard who, who throws a life preserver to someone in, in the ocean who's, who's sinking and, and, and about to drown and struggling to keep their head above the water. We're sinking beneath the waves, and we will surely die without God's help. But God throws that ring perfectly, and we reach out and we catch it and grab a hold of it, and he saves us. There's a problem, though. It's that we're not like a man struggling to stay afloat. We're dead. We're, on the, we're dead on the ocean floor. We don't need a lifeguard to give us a hand. We need the Lord of life to give us new life. This demonized man doesn't need help cleaning up his life. He needs deliverance. And friends, we too need someone to deliver us, to rescue us. As Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 13, from the domain of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom of the beloved Son. So our main point this morning, friends, is that Jesus has sought us out, and he has rescued us from the domain of darkness. And we're going to see this today as we look at this passage through three lenses. First, we're going to look at the man, then the Messiah, and then lastly, the mission. First of all, the man. Look with me again at verses 2 through 5. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones." If you've ever read the Gospel of Mark before, you know that the pace is very fast. Everything happens immediately with Mark. He often doesn't give us a lot of detail. And so it's fascinating that here, 
and such that he gives us four verses worth of information uh, about this man. But Mark wants us to see that the human wretchedness that results from spiritual oppression. He wants us to feel the weight of what Satan can do if he's given the opportunity. We're first told that this man has an unclean spirit. Um, Later in the passage, we learn that there's actually more. In verse 9, then, the demon names himself Legion, for we are many. Uh, A Roman legion was a military unit that had roughly 6,000 men. But what matters is not the number, how many there are, but the fact that this man is hopelessly outmatched and overwhelmed. And what's more, unlike Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you you can't separate the man from the monster. If you look at verses 9 and 10 again, the pronouns, I don't know if you heard it when we were reading, but the pronouns keep changing between he and they, singular and plural, back and forth. He speaks, the demons speak, and it's all mixed up together. The demons are entrenched, and they're powerful, and they're violent. And their violence has driven this man away from society. Uh, he's a danger to himself and to those around him. When the townspeople tried, apparently multiple times, to bind him, even putting chains and shackles on him, he wrenched the chains apart and and smashed the shackles to bits. He's supernaturally strong. No one can subdue him. No one can help him. And so he he lives uh, in the tombs outside the town. And, And just as a reminder, these tombs were not the elaborate monuments that you see today in a graveyard. Tombs in that day were caves in a a hill or a cliff. These caves were places of uncleanness. You only went there to bury someone. And so this guy is isolated, he's unclean, he's shut out from society, cut off from everyone he once knew. But even then, by himself, he can't hide himself. He can't hide from the voices, the horrors within. He's wrapped with inner torment. This man runs wild, and as the Gospel of Luke tells us, he runs around naked among the tombs and on the hilltops, screaming out night and day. And maybe driven by the demons, maybe driven by a desire to simply control something about his life, he cuts himself over and over and over again. He's bent on self-destruction. He's alone, naked, bleeding helpless, living amongst the dead. Some of you here this morning may not be Christians, and though you feel pity for this guy, you may be wondering how this story of a man uh, 2,000 years ago, what does this have to do with me? But, but, But listen to these words from a pastor friend of mine. We are more like this man than we think. We're able to mask our problems. He can't. It's not that he's on a different road. It's just he's further down it, and we are. This man represents who we are apart from Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote, as we heard in the the reading of the law in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, and you, not just him, you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived 
and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who we all were or are still. Consciously or not, we were dead in sin and following the prince of the power of the air. We were like this man. Now you might be thinking to yourself, I'm not like this man though. I'm not demon-possessed. And I would actually probably agree with you. But see, movies have totally skewed and trivialized uh, what we think of when we think of possession. You know, when we think of possession, we think of spinning heads and murderous dolls and uh, clowns with axes and, you know, pentagrams and Satan worship. You know, it's, yeah. But you see, the word possessed actually isn't in this passage. It's there in the English, in the English translation, because the translators were trying to make it uh, straightforward and simple to understand. But, but, but the word is actually simply demonized. This man was demonized in the sense of being oppressed by or influenced by the demonic. So it's not that you have a spinning head or something like that, but rather that in some way you are under the influence under the influence of uh, the demonic realm of forces hostile to God and hostile to you. Their aim is to destroy you. And it doesn't matter if you think of yourself as a nice person either. The Pharisees thought they were good, moral, upstanding, upright. But Jesus says to them, you are of your father, the devil, for he was a liar from the beginning. See, we're really good at masking our sins, at manufacturing fig leaves so that we can outwardly look normal. But that's not the case. Friends, if you are not trusting in Jesus this morning, if you are trusting in your goodness or your virtue, or if you're just simply looking out for number one this morning, you are on the same road as this man too. Here, In this passage, we stand exposed before the all-seeing eye of a holy God. So, for others of you this morning, as you read this passage, as you think about the experience of this man, this may feel more like your own experience. You, too, hear the voices. You, too, feel the the, the waves of shame and self-destruction that trap you, that you can't free yourselves from. I don't want to be overly simplistic, but but friends, here in Jesus, there is hope. There is genuine, true healing and deliverance from that which binds you, from that which whispers lies to you in the darkness. Here, in the face of Christ, there is life. Joy. And then finally, before we move on to the next point, I just want to briefly address a question that some of you might be wondering about in the back of your mind. You know, can a genuine Christian be controlled by a demon? And I want to assure you that the answer is no. The Apostle John makes that clear in 1 John 4, 4, that little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he is the Holy Spirit. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in you. He's the down payment of your inheritance in heaven. He bears witness to your spirit that you truly, fully, finally belong to your Father in heaven, and no one and nothing can snatch you out of his hand. 
And though you may fall into sin, you will never fully, finally fall away. Jesus himself says to Peter on the night when he was betrayed, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And friends, Jesus is right now at the right hand of his Father in heaven praying for you that we may not fail. He who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. So that's the first point, the man. That then leads us to our second point, the Messiah. What does this passage tell us about Jesus? Well, there are several things that I could highlight, but, but I think the most important thing is this. Jesus doesn't provide us with simplistic solutions. He offers us himself. How does Jesus heal this guy? He doesn't come whispering incantations. He doesn't sprinkle holy water on the guy. He doesn't wave around garlic or offer a sacrifice. He definitely doesn't get out his crossbow or get the silver bullet. But he also doesn't offer this man a 12-step program to recovery. He doesn't give him the latest, greatest self-help book from the bookstore. What does Jesus do? He commands the demon, and the demon comes out. More than simply having to obey, the demons have to grovel at his feet. We start to get hints about this back in verse 2. And back in verse 2, it says that Jesus, when Jesus stepped out from the boat, immediately there met him a man with an unclean spirit. And that word met isn't a, like a friendly, you know, how do you do at the back of the church when you come in. This is a, this is a confrontation. This, is, this word met actually is used of military warfare when armies are encountering each other in battle. And so as soon as Jesus steps off the boat... This demonically inspired, supernaturally vicious opponent sees him and charges at him. And Mark then dramatically interrupts the action to give us background about this guy who's running at Jesus, but then brings us back in verse 6, picking up where he left off. And this wild-eyed, naked, bloody, and humanly strong man is running full bore at Jesus and his disciples as they're getting off the boat. And you can just picture the disciples starting to freak out as this guy is running at them. And they're wondering what it, what's going to happen. But then, as one commentator put it, the explosive terror of the demoniac does not prevail. For rather than falling on Jesus, he falls on his knees and shouted at the top of his voice, swear to God that you won't torture me. When demoniac meets divine, it's a no-contest event. See, unlike the Pharisees, the demons know who Jesus is. Now, the Pharisees on multiple occasions said that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan. And if you remember that story, you remember that Jesus responds, wait, what? I'm casting out Satan by the power of Satan? How does that work? That, that doesn't even make sense. You know, if Satan's casting out Satan, you know, the house divided will fall. But the demons know who Jesus is. He's the son of the living God. He's the word of the Father, the authoritative, all-powerful word who in the beginning created them in the first place. And they can't do anything than come running like a dog when their master whistles. Jesus, the king, speaks. And friends, 
they must listen. Jesus, the king, commands, and the man is cleansed. But what's with their comment about Jesus torturing them? It's, it's small, but I think it gives us a really interesting insight into their expectations for the Messiah. Because the demons, like everyone else in Palestine in that time, they, were, they, they knew the scriptures. They knew that the Messiah was going to come. Uh, someone clothed with the power of God who would set up the kingdom of God. But here's the thing, though. No one, not the Jews, not the demons, expected that the Messiah would come twice. Once in weakness and humility to save sinners, but then a second time in power to judge the world. So when Jesus shows up on a, in a boat on their shore that morning, they think judgment day has arrived. They think he's come to judge them. But in truth, they weren't far off. Judgment day had arrived, but not for them just for Jesus. Because to deliver this man from darkness, Jesus had to suffer the horrors of Judgment Day in his place. Just like this man, Jesus is stripped and made naked. Just like this man, Jesus is cut and gashed and bloodied, not by rocks, but by whips. Just like this man, Jesus is separated from his friends and his family, forsaken by his father, like this man, Jesus cries out in agony on the cross. And just like this man, friends, Jesus goes into the tomb. Jesus, the Messiah, is not simply the authoritative king. He's also the suffering servant. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He bore your sins in his body on the tree, so that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness. By his stripes, friends, you are healed. He doesn't offer us simplistic solutions. He offers us a solution as deep and as wide and as high as himself. He breaks our bondage to sin and Satan, and he gives us himself as our new, as his new master, or as our new master, our new Lord, he says to us, take my yoke upon yourself. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And that, that brings us to the last point, the mission. There's a, a question here which is begging to be asked, but which we haven't really addressed. And actually, if you don't think about it, you don't even realize there is a question there. But why is Jesus there at all? Why is Jesus there at all? After all, it's the wrong side of the Sea of Galilee. It's the Gentile side, the side where they don't care about God's law, the side where they raise pigs. Why would Jesus go there? Well, if you look back at chapter 4, we find actually that Jesus had every reason to stay in Galilee, on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. He, he had massive thronging crowds following him around, crowds who were hanging on his every word, crowds who were astonished by his authority. And yet, at the end of that day, Jesus told his disciples, let's get into the boat and cross the sea. Why? Was he expecting a revival to break out on the other side? Because that didn't really happen. 
The only person there waiting for him was a you know, naked, half-crazed guy running at him. And then when the rest of the people in the town come out to see what's going on, they're filled with terror, not with awe, and they beg Jesus to leave. And then in verse 21, Jesus goes back and picks up right where he left off. So did Jesus take this trip on a whim? Well, no, I don't think so. This was intentional. Friends, this was planned. Friends, this was a mission. Friends, Jesus crossed the pond for this one man. He crossed the sea to seek and save this one wretched man from his bondage and misery. Jesus left the acclaim of the crowds, cut through the violence of a storm, braved the wrath of demons, endured the shunning of the townsfolk to rescue this one man. That's the love of our Savior for hopeless and helpless human beings made in the image of God. He left the 99 to rescue the one lost sheep. Jesus knew he had to cross the sea because there's no way that this man could come to him. He needed to be rescued. And the sheep can't come back. A shepherd has to go and seek him out. And so Jesus went the distance to use what Rob wanted to title this sermon. Jesus went the distance, and no distance, no obstacle, no barrier could stand in Jesus' way. And friends, the same is still true today. No matter what your history, no matter what your present, no matter what might lie in the future either, Jesus is able to bring healing and hope and deliverance even to the most broken of us. But Jesus doesn't just fulfill his mission and then return. He gives this man a mission too. Look at verse 19. He says to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And friends, that's the same thing that Jesus tells us today. There's no secret formula. You don't need to memorize any spiritual laws. Jesus says to you this morning, think about how much I have done for you. Now go and tell others about me. We have the privilege of bearing witness to the awesome and amazing work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we can sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind but now I see. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that in Christ we are made new. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for this search and rescue work that you have accomplished for us. Help us to faithfully bear witness to you and your work in us as we go out from here into our day, into our week. Would your spirit empower us to speak words of life, words of hope, words of truth, even to the person just outside these doors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.